and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Mantramani shares the audio portion of his January 28, 2021 webinar discussion with Elliot Higgins. Thanks everybody for joining. Uh, this is the first Think for Yourself webinar of the spring um, for 2021. Uh, I was going to say, thank God 2020 is behind us, but I remember seeing one of these cartoons that had uh, a person with a return slip and saying, I've seen the first seven days of 2021 and I want a refund <laughs> uh, after what happened in Washington, DC. So uh, in any case, um, I am thrilled today to have Elliot Higgins as my guest. Uh, I've had a chance to get to know Elliot over the past maybe six months to a year when in the course of uh, writing my book and finishing the research for Think for Yourself, I was looking for people who were particularly astute at connecting dots and uh, thinking for themselves and not relying on the traditional expert silo model of finding insight. And so uh, Elliot and Bellingcat really stood out. And so we're, we're gonna come to that. But before I wanna just do a quick advertisement for my webinar uh, next week. So next week I have, uh, oops, let me uh, slide this forward. Next week, we're gonna have Gilman Louie on Tuesday. Uh, and Gilman is uh, a venture capitalist by training, a technologist, someone who focuses on uh, cyber, artificial intelligence, et cetera. Um, and he's had a background that's included some time with intelligence agencies. He was the founding CEO of InQtel, uh, but he's also just a professional venture capitalist trying to uh, invest in innovations and technologies that could help make the world better. Um, and so uh, next week we'll have Gilman. And of course, uh, the advertisement, <laughs> the advertisement for my book, Think for Yourself, uh, which is still available. So um, with that said, let me stop this share here um, and uh, turn to you, Elliot. Thanks for taking the time, Elliot, to join me. I am so excited to have you here. Uh, I did get a chance and I'm going to do the plug so you don't have to. <laughs> uh, Elliot has a new book. Uh, it's called uh, We Are Bellingcat. It's coming out in early March, I believe, Elliot. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's coming out in early March. And um, at that point, it'll be available. I have sent out a link to everyone uh, with a ability to pre-purchase the book uh, through bookshop.org, which is my preferred uh, bookstore vendor uh, to try to keep it local and uh, small business oriented. Um, but in any case, after that long-winded introduction and sort of uh, logistics background, Elliot, I would love you to just introduce yourself the way you would introduce yourself. And then I'm gonna turn to a little clip of how someone else might have described you. Um, so I'm the um, chief executive of Bellingcat, which I started six, six and a half years ago now. It came from a blog I was doing called the Brown Moses blog, which was named after a Frank Zappa song uh, completely randomly. And then it become this huge thing about using open source material, anything available online to investigate all kinds of um, incidents from kind of the downing of MH17 in uh, Eastern Ukraine, which Bellingcat became very well known for, um, through to a lot of work on the conflicts in Syria. And we've been building that and growing since, since I founded it. And now we're a uh, fully registered Dutch charitable foundation and we have 20 staff members and it's really just grown from nothing. That's wonderful. Um, and you also do some training of, of people in sort of the Bellingcat open source method, right? And we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah, um, Elliot was kind enough to include me in one of those training sessions last year, which I had a chance to get a sneak peek of what it's like to actually do this dot connecting. And it really is brilliant work. So I'm going to take a second and we're going to experiment here with this, uh, this webinar series and go to a 
uh, introduction that I think also is a description of Eliot uh, from the Syrian uh, diplomat at the United Nations when he was describing some of the work that Eliot did, and then I'll let Eliot react to it. So let me, uh, let me turn to that right now. Um, and here we go. Give me one second. We'll share this screen. And I hope everyone, if you have your volume turned up, you should be able to hear this. Um, and let's go ahead and start it. Allegations against my country are depending on amateur bloggers and videos. And among one of them is a very famous British citizen called Elliot Higgins, whose online inputs about the situation in Syria are intensively yet mistakenly adopted by many media outlets as well as governments. According to Wikipedia, and I quote, Elliot Higgins in 2012, when he began blogging the Syrian situation, was an unemployed finance and admin worker who spent his days taking care of his child at home. Higgins' analysis of Syrian weapons began as a hobby out of his home in his spare time. Higgins has no background or training in weapons and is entirely self-taught. <clears throat> and he said, before the Arab Spring, I knew no more about weapons than the average Xbox owner. I had no knowledge beyond what I had learned from Arnold Schwarzenegger and Rambo. Yet some member states still depend on such biased and unprofessional sources as Mr. Higgins and others like him. Mr. Chairman, it's worthy for all of us to join efforts in fighting terrorism in Syria before. All right, I'm going to stop it there, Elliot. So uh, you've obviously heard that before. I don't think that's yeah. the first time you're hearing it. I mean, it's, it's always nice, nice when someone calls you very famous. I mean, that's a, obviously a compliment. Um, the, the thing is, I mean, the, I've never pretended to be anything else aside from someone who's completely self-taught. And um, when I did start doing this, I literally was looking at every like videos coming from Syria of these munitions that were being used, sometimes just the remains of a bomb and looking at every single kind of bolt and scrap of metal and comparing it to reference imagery that was online. Yeah. And through that, I kind of started building up a knowledge of the um, weapons that were being used in sure. the conflict in Syria. And I kind of became a bit obsessed about doing that and making sure I was kind of 100% correct every single time. And um, over the years, as I, I mean, I, I did just start this as a hobby, just kind of almost for fun. And I was just frustrated at the way um, I could see so much being shared on social media, one that was difficult to verify. So I asked the question, how do you actually verify where these films, uh, videos are being filmed? And also I could see people on the ground, mainly journalists at first, who'd be kind of tweeting out they'd seen something, but it would never make it into their reporting because it wasn't the main thing they were working on. And yeah. I noticed this in particular in the conflict in Libya, which is why I started getting interested in this. But over time, I started realizing that, you know, if there's an incident in the world and this, you know, it kind of social media and kind of digital network about around that, it creates almost like a shockwave. You yeah. can kind of find all the, you know, digital traces of that and then trace it back to the moment it happened. Sure, sure. No, that's great. So one of the reasons I wanted to show that is I think the implication of the Syrian diplomat was the lack of expertise was a negative. And in fact, I think you and I agree that sometimes it's the fresh perspective and the innocent eyes that actually finds the details of real value and is able to connect those dots. So, um, be before we get into it, I'm curious if you could just give us a little background on your on your background, uh, sort of personally, sort of where you grew up, siblings, etc., things that might have influenced you. And and I know from reading your book uh, that you know 
online gaming was part of your uh, your your fascination at younger ages, perhaps. Yeah, I um, I mean, my um, dad was in the Royal Air Force, so we used to move around quite a lot every three or four years to different postings. So I lived all over um, the UK, and I, I have a brother and. Um, a lot of people think, oh, he was in the Air Force, therefore that's your interest in military has come from that. But it was never really ever, that was not the point of origin for that. I um, kind of just traveled around and then I um, started working various kind of admin, kind of low level admin roles. And basically I did that for like 10 years. And then it, I, I was always quite um, interested in kind of um, politics because my kind of childhood was, or my teenage years were really bookended by in the inv first invasion of Iraq. Uh, or the Gulf War, and then the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the kind of disinformation that came from the kind of UK and US government, you know, the dodgy dossiers and stuff about that. So it yep. kind of bookended um, my teenage years. So during that period, I was kind of reading a lot, um, in particular about US politics from a kind of leftist perspective. Yep. Um, so that kind of colored my thinking around kind of human rights and accountability. It's, it's ironic now, a lot of those people I used to read seem to become part of the CIA now, but yeah, oh well. Yeah. Um, but I um, kind of just, I was working these admin jobs and then in 2011, the conflict in uh, Libya started and I spent a lot of time online and I, I was someone who was playing a lot of kind of online games like um, Ultima Online and World of Warcraft and yep. I, I really kind of, knew how to like I existed in these online communities in a way and because of that I could kind of really engage I think a lot with what was coming out of these conflict zones through these kind of new sources these social media sources people filming stuff on the ground sharing it on YouTube and I was also kind of embroiled with the kind of online battles over that information the kind of people who were like saying well how do you know where this video was filmed and even then you could see kind of different communities growing around kind of more kind of conspiratorial viewpoints of what was happening in these conflicts. And, you know, that actually Gaddafi was a great guy. He was just misunderstood and that kind of stuff. But um, there was always arguments about this content online and it wasn't between, you know, anyone who was like an academic because people on the internet forums who are just mad at each other. But I thought, well, actually, how do I know where these are actually filmed? And that kind of gave me the idea of looking at satellite imagery and comparing that um, you know, the objects that were visible there, like large buildings to what was visible in these videos. And I kind of stumbled across this thing we now call geolocation in our community, but it's basically using other reference material to verify exactly where something was filmed or photographed. And that's kind of now one of the kind of core skills of open source investigation. And then my um, daughter was born in 2011, funnily enough, just the day after Gaddafi was killed. And uh, <laughs> horribly. Um, and then I just like, five months I was so busy between my work and uh, looking after my daughter and everything else I didn't really have time to do anything and then I thought well I need, I need to find a hobby because I need something to do in the evening sometimes and um, I thought I'll start a blog and write down some of this stuff I'm seeing so I was still kind of engaging in these discussions and Syria was starting to become the next kind of big conflict it was escalating so in early 2012 I founded this blog called the Brown Moses blog mm -hmm. and that was named after an online kind of pseudonym I'd been using which was randomly picked from a Frank Zappa song I was listening at the time um, and I had no idea that anyone would really kind of you know, take it seriously or care about it but I was always very clear about my own knowledge and lack of it in various areas but also only talking about exactly what I could see in these videos and often I was I saw people who were looking at these videos making these huge kind of claims about them saying oh there's 
this is a video from Libya and that guy's a white guy, therefore he must be a CIA agent. And sometimes it could just be some random kind of journalist who was wandering around in frame. But I didn't want to be one of those people who was just adding bad information into the kind of information ecosystem about it. So I would just say, okay, what can I figure out? Well, at that point, when I started doing the stuff on Libya, the man pads, for example, these shoulder launch missiles were a big issue. So I found videos of that and I shared it with a New York Times journalist. And I started getting more and more kind of journalists and people from NGOs kind of sending me messages saying, oh, hey, where did you find that video? And just slowly started building a kind of audience and almost a network of um, people who were interested in the same things I were. Yeah, and you say that was one of the first big breaks. You talk about this in your book about how the New York Times front page article about your work effectively got you noticed and that resulted in that Guardian interview and that resulted in a sort of snowballed from there. But uh, so maybe talk a little bit specifically about how you were able to identify, uh, I think it was arms and the movement and specifically Saudi's involvement in it, correct? Yeah, so in early 2013, I'd spent about a year looking at videos from Syria and kind of building my own kind of skills and blogging while I was seeing. And I'd focused a lot on the weapons that were being used in the conflict. First of all, the question of um, looking at... Um, you know, the, the bombs that were being dropped and the remains of them. And I found cluster munitions being used and I could use reference material to find that. Then I was looking at details of um, other stuff like uh, the weapons being used by the rebels. And then in early 2013, I was doing my daily thing of like looking at all the videos coming from Syria, like hundreds of YouTube videos and seeing if anything jumped out immediately. And I noticed some of the rebel groups were holding these really odd looking weapons. And they were kind of rocket launchers, grenade launchers, and these things called recordless rifles. Um, and I, was, I, I couldn't figure out where they were from because I'd never seen them before. And yeah. then what ca I came across was something that was really interesting that all of a sudden, I went back and looked through all my videos and realized in a very short period of time, these weapons had just appeared from nowhere. They'd never been seen in the conflict before. And mm -hmm. then Syrian television aired a piece where they showed this truck that had been emptied of all these weapons. And it was hundreds and hundreds of items, but they're exactly the same weapons I had just seen in all these videos. And it became very clear then that someone was sending these to the rebels because they weren't seen in Syria. They were, they were from the former Yugoslavia. So I sent that over to the New York Times uh, contact I yep. had, C.J. Chivers, and he looked into it and um, came back to me about a week later and said, this is actually quite a big story. We're going to we've been talking to like U.S. officials and yep. because of these videos and being able to show them the videos of the weapons, they were like, oh, yeah, that's the Saudi secret arms operation, yep. which the rebels are just posted on YouTube. Yep. But it opened it was like a front page on the New York Times as the first evidence of these actual weapons being smuggled because before there were rumors, but this was like video evidence of it happening. Um, and I kind of got to write a thing in the New York Times about it. And then like the following week, I had like back-to-back -back interviews first in the Guardian. And then I had like CNN come along. They called it me, me a stay-at-home Mr. Mom, which was a uh, not exactly something I wanted to be described as, but it was um, just like a really weird period. And all of a sudden my audience grew quite a bit, but it was really then in 2013, I, uh, in August, I looked at the um, August 21st sound attacks in Damascus. Yep. And with those attacks, there was a huge amount of user-generated content. And I was kind of the only person who was really looking through it in a systematic fashion. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gave, it was a huge story internationally when it happened, but it was like the journalists and the investigators who were looking into it weren't equipped to look through the social media content that was coming out in the way I, I had become you know skilled at doing so sure. then i started writing about it and again that was like another kind of boost 
Yeah, so Elliot, one thing that might be helpful for those that uh, are listening, we have a wide diversity of people who will listen to this, is you stick specifically in the world, or at least most of the time. I, I realize in the book, you sort of talk about a couple examples where you, you went off of the open source intelligence domain, but you're looking at information that is out there and available to everyone, right? I mean, this is information I could find. This is information others could find. When you say satellite imagery, this is Google Earth. This isn't a specialized service, right? I mean, so, so give us some examples of what you might mean when you say open source of social media for those that may not have the background of what kind of information you're looking at. Yeah, so you, you your book is Think for Itself in a way, Bellingcast, See for Yourself. We yeah. find this information that's online and, you know, in the context of Syria, it was very frequently videos posted online by armed groups, activists and other people on the opposition side who were showing certain things. Sometimes it could just be someone filming out their window of the airstrikes that were happening in their town. Sometimes it was an activist who was on the front line with the fighters. But it always gave a picture of what was going on. It was still a limited viewpoint, but it was certainly a wider viewpoint and kind of kind of almost a more gonzo viewpoint than most journalists on the ground would get, even before they stopped traveling there because of the you know threat of ISIS and other um, threats against journalists. But then you look at that footage and then you can look at satellite imagery of this area. And Google Earth was very useful uh, in our work because it has historical satellite imagery on it. So you could go back and actually see the changes over time. So if you're looking at video, you could say, okay, I'm not sure where it's, when it was filmed, but if I look at the satellite imagery, I can see this building was standing on that day and then it was destroyed on this image from four days later. So something happened between that time and I can see that happening in the video. So you start narrowing down when it was filmed as well. And then what you're able to do is take those kind of images and uh, social media posts and all that other information and kind of com combine them and cross-reference them and use them to verify you know, each other, along with kind of independent data like this satellite imagery, which you know, often when you're doing this work and you're dealing with these kind of big topics where there's a lot of kind of online discussion and parties like the Russian government and the Syrians involved, they're constantly trying to attack your work and whether, you know, it's, they say that's fake, it's not real. But yeah. when you have a, you know, a satellite imagery image coming from a company that has, you have no control over, that it's very, you know, that it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, finding it and someone saying that's not a needle. It's like, it, it's really hard for them to deny it. And because you can then go on and write a very detailed description of what you've done show all your sources show all the material you're referencing against you know draw colored boxes around saying this is this thing and this satellite imagery um it makes for a much more compelling way of describing you know what you've discovered and it also means that people can come along look at that data and say okay that's good i use this in my own work and i can actually take it a step further by doing this or that and i think that's what made bellingcat so successful in my blog initially because people could come to me, look at my work and ask me questions about it and go off and do their own thing with it. So it's adding value to what they were doing, not just telling them stuff that they couldn't really use in their own context. Yeah, well, what's very interesting is the evolution of your process, at least as I read in the book, was first you were providing what you called nuggets, which is, hey, I just want to add some insight here. I'm not trying to contextualize it. I'm not trying to analyze it. I'm just trying to say this happened here. We weren't sure and sort of validating data points. Uh, but at some point you moved from validating data points into doing analysis or even drawing conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think you, you referenced a couple of times as to what might've caused that, including perhaps, I think it was that massacre in Libya that sort of spurred some of your thinking in this direction. Hey, I got to do something about this. This is not just okay to provide locations, et cetera. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about that and how you're, thinking process evolved from, let me provide nuggets to those who are doing the work 
to eventually, uh-oh, hold on a second. Um, I need to do the work. <laughs> no one else is doing the work. Yeah, it was, um, when I started doing this, I kind of thought, well, surely this is really useful information and, you know, the big NGOs, governments, whoever it may be, must be using this information. But it became clear very rapidly they weren't at all and they were barely aware that this was the thing you could do, if at all. Um, so one of the things that really kind of made me realize how important this was is in early 2013, I um, went to this kind of... Um, camp summer camp for activists basically that was run by an uh, organization in berlin called tactical tech and they invited a whole range of people from all kinds of different situations and they asked us to um, um me and a few other people to run a group on investigations and i had never kind of done like anything like this before met these kind of people because i was just at home in leicester doing my blog and i met these people and they were all like really incredible people like people are like really on the front line of doing this kind of activism uh under threat from their governments and i showed my, them my stuff thinking what what are they going to care about videos of weapons and saying what they are and stuff like that but they gave me a really positive reaction they said this is really good that we could use this in our own work and i thought well maybe I, this is time for me to start considering what I can do with this and take this further. Shortly after that, we then had the August 21st sarin attacks in um, 2013. And there, because I had such a range of knowledge from doing like 18 months of looking at every video I could from Syria, I was the only person who knew these chemical munitions that were used in the attack, which at first glance looked kind of quite kind of DIY. So a lot of people started saying, oh, well, these look like rebel chemical weapons because it looks so DIY. Mm -hmm. I'd seen the government use them before in other contexts yeah. and no one else had seen that. So I was able to actually start giving context that no one else had. And um, I mean, it's since then I've been kind of looking at every single chemical weapons attack that happened in Syria, like every OPCW report. Yeah. And I've got a real knowledge about that kind of stuff. Stuff, but that really started with those early kind of 2013 chemical attacks and then i started seeing with the august uh, 2013 sound attack um seymour hirsch published a piece now seymour hirsch was someone i knew because obviously he's done great pulitzer prize winning journalism so i was very excited to read this article um and i read it and i was just appalled at the quality of it he had used very few sources he clearly didn't bother at all with all these you know there were 200 videos from the attack it's like if he had 200 videos of the My Lai massacre, he would be using those. But for some reason, because this was on YouTube, it didn't seem to count. He didn't really seem to care about it. And his story was completely contradicted by this digital evidence, this social media evidence. And I think that's when a lot of journalists started looking at what I was doing in, in the context of old journalism versus new journalism. But I really never saw it as a kind of battle between the two, but a way in which a new investigative technique can kind of supplement and be part of journalism and other kinds of investigative work. Yeah, it's interesting. For those that want more information, there's a wonderful documentary about Elliot and Bellingcat. It's called Bellingcat, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. It's available on Topic that new channel, at least available through uh, Apple uh, TV and, and Prime, but it's Topics the Channel. And in it, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of media academics that talk about the, the evolution of journalism. Before it used to be the big white uh, building, the sort of, you know, the authority, the brand, BBC, New York Times, and that was the credibility and the sources were kept anonymous. Um, and they're, they're very complimentary in saying, Elliot's creating a new form of journalism where actually, doesn't matter who you are, or where you're from, what's the data? Transparency, show us the facts. Let me validate it myself. Let me go confirm them, et cetera. Uh, so there's, a, there's something to that, which I, which I found very uh, powerful. 
Like the other thing I, I thought you might spend a second on here, because it comes across very wonderfully in some of these uh, movies, et cetera, but also in the book, uh, which is how you and a small group of individuals were able to effectively, I mean, solve is maybe not the right term, but um, shed light on MH17 more quickly, more effectively than this joint investigation team, which had how many, I mean, I don't know how many people they had involved, but they had government budgets and everything. You guys are working on a shoestring on your own time. And you come to the conclusions that they do quicker uh, and, and potentially more accurately. Um, and I found it fascinating just watching the, the trail of information flow as you uncover the story of Facebook and sort of looking at the social media tags of the individuals and looking at their friends and looking at their friends' friends and their parents and their spouses and their siblings, et cetera, and finding it and getting geolocation. And but please describe that a little bit, because I think that's an, a powerful and amazing story. So um, at the start of 2014, I decided I wanted to launch a new website. Um, I came up with the name Bellingcat with the help of a friend of mine. And in June of that year, I crowdfunded the launch of it and it launched on July 14th, 2014. Then three days later, MH17 was shot down in Eastern Ukraine, a commercial aircraft. Um, at that point, Bellingcat was literally just me and a website, but very quickly, um, the kind of online community who were kind of engaged with open source investigation already started piecing through all this material. And on top of that, you had a community in Ukraine and Russia and people who are just interested in the topic who are also searching for all this information. And very quickly, I mean, literally within minutes of it being shot down, we started seeing the first videos of what looked like a book missile launcher, a Russian made surface to air missile launcher. Um, the question was then where were these filmed and photographed? Of course, I knew how to figure that out. So very quickly, we started geolocating these um, videos and using the time of day based off of the shadows that were being cast once we knew exactly where they were taken to figure out the not only the route of this missile launcher, but the time this missile launcher was photographed and filmed. And um, around that, I started building a kind of little in informal team only like five or six people who were kind of working together, looking at this stuff. And we published a series of articles pointing out that this missile launcher traveled through separatist territory towards this site, which was believed to be the launch site because there was a uh, smoke trail photographed coming from the direction of that site. And there were social media posts of people saying a missile just got fired from this field near my house and we figured out where they live and you know that kind of stuff. Yep. And then in um, October of that year, 2014, the joint investigation team, the Dutch police contacted me uh, or through the Metropolitan Police in the UK and asked if they would interview me as a witness. So I was quite surprised by that. I thought, <laughs> oh, I, I was just like, an, I thought I'm still an amateur blogger, but they interviewed me for like 10 hours going through every single post we had made line by line, like piece of evidence by piece of evidence saying, where do you get this? What did you do here? And they went away really, really happy. And, and in January 2015, I believe that she started a team specifically to look at this kind of material. Um, and I've been told later it was like inspired by the work of Banningcat because they hadn't realized how important that would be for them to understand the case. But after that, I went back to the people I was working with and said, let's work a bit more intensively and formally on this. So we created this Slack channel and um, started just working through all this evidence. So then we figured out the missile launch had actually come from Russia. And the way we did that is um, this community of people online searching through YouTube videos and any kind of 
video online they could find or photograph, started finding lots of videos of this convoy in Russia that had um, a whole brigade of book missile launchers or a whole um, division of a brigade. And it was traveling through Russia. So, and there were a couple of dozen videos and photographs of this. And we started as a team geolocating all of these and figuring out exactly where. And it gave us a very clear route that originated from Kursk. So we looked up um, air, air defense brigades in Kursk and there was only one of them and only one in that region which had book missile launchers. We went to their social media page which they had on the Russian social media site vcontactor and the soldiers in that brigade followed the brigade's you know, vcontactor page. So we looked at all their profiles and who they followed and they followed other soldiers and they were taking photographs of themselves, some of them inside this convoy as it was traveling down to the border. And they were posting these certificates they got for training between the dates the convoy was moving. But we found one missile launcher that stood out because it had these um, markings on the side, damage that just happened to be exactly the same as the markings on the side and the damage as the missile launcher seen in Ukraine. So we were like, okay, something's definitely going on here. And we found more and more footage and more and more matches between this Russian missile launcher from the 53rd Air Defense Brigade in Russia and the one that was seen in Ukraine on the day MH17 was shot down. And we effectively proved using you know, all these details that Russia had provided the missile launcher that shot down MH17. And then there were questions of, did they also supply the crew? And given the complexity of the missile launcher, now that we know it arrived on the night of the 17th and um, you know, left that the night of the 18th, we know that uh, the missile launcher was you know, crewed by a Russian crew. So we just started building out and going out. And then we started finding all these, there were these intercepted phone calls published by the Ukrainian security services and by the joint investigation team and we were able to use little clues in these phone calls to identify the people in the phone calls and they turned out to be Russian military officers, Russian intelligence officers talking about the movement of this missile launcher and just over the years we just started building out more and more information about exactly what happened but it wasn't until 2016, two years after we started, that the joint investigation team did a press conference where they explained their own findings and it was quite nerve-wracking for me because I was thinking because I actually went there yeah. to the press conference and all the family members were there and they'd been briefed just beforehand there was a huge media presence i actually got like mobbed outside the building because i, I all the media crews were just waiting around for something to happen and i turned up and i was like at the bar and someone said oh it's hey elliot um and a couple of other journalists heard that and they realized who i i, I was and then all these cameras started yeah. turning up and i was put i was forced to leave the building because they wouldn't allow me to be filmed in the building and it, it was a really weird experience and I was thinking, if this, if they don't say exactly what we've just said, it's going to be really embarrassing because there is always a bit of a tinge of doubt because, you know, this is a new field and sometimes it feels like you're doing kind of magic and it's, uh, you know, treated like that. But they came out and basically confirmed everything we've been saying for the last two years. Um, and I think that was a really huge moment, not just for Bellingcat and myself, but for the field of like online open source investigation, because what happened then is I think people who are like a little bit unsure, they, they saw it like magic as well. And they thought it was a bit not real, realized that we had come to the same conclusions, you know, two years earlier than the joint investigation team had just presented. Yeah. Um, so that was like a really, really big moment for the, the kind of whole development of open source investigation. Yep. Yep. No, it's fascinating. I think it's a, it's really a gripping story. It reads like a spy novel, actually. <laughs> sort of, oh, we found it. We found the book moving back and it had one less missile, etc. It's, it's, it's really a, it's really fabulous. So Ellie, I've got a lot of questions that have come in here. And so I'm sure. going to drizzle them in from now through the, the rest of our hour here. Um, the first one was, have you ever 
been asked to kill an investigation that you started looking into? Or alternatively, have you ever been approached with someone says, hey, please look at this? Or is it stuff that you find interesting in the domains you focus on? So how do you come up with the topics to focus on? I mean, generally, um, it's kind of led by the investigators because we were volunteer organizations. So it wasn't like I could tell people to look at certain things because they would just say, no, it's not like say, oh, you're fired because they're a volunteer. But um, it's like with MH17, because it was such a big incident, there were so many people who kind of were interested in doing stuff on it. And some were better researchers than others. And the kind of best of those kind of became the Bellingcat team. And then kind of naturally, we kind of started looking at other things that were happening in Ukraine because alongside all the information we're finding about MH17 we're also finding out evidence that there were Russian troops inside Ukraine mm -hmm. and Russia was denying that they were involved with the conflict so this was significant this was not some minor stuff so people started in the volunteers started working on that and then um, Russia started bombing uh, Syria and because my background was Syria and a few of the people who kind of been following my work were interested in Syria and a lot of the original kind of open source community had focused on Syria, there was then a big focus on Russia's involvement in the conflict in Syria. So it kind of naturally evolved um, for the first kind of few years of Bellingcat. Then we started getting to a point where I was I started to hire staff and we became larger and larger as an organization where we went from, you know, myself as a volunteer and then a couple of years ago it's like five staff members and now we're up to 20 and um, we still give people as much flexibility as possible we have kind of pretty um, broad long-term goals for Bell and Cap like um, we kind of want to spread into kind of new areas of investigation we want to um, work in different regions of the world but that's kind of it we don't say you have to work on this really specific thing and the people who are working on the topics they're working on are working on them because they want to work on them not because they've been told to do it I, I never really ever tell people to look at certain things or do this or that and if you know we've had some people come to us saying hey we get people all the time emailing saying can you look at this and that but I assume the question asker is thinking more of a government kind of uh, thing yeah. um but no I mean we've I, I we never really have we've had um you know a couple of people come to us saying you know do you, do you think this is interesting and I say well, yeah it's, it's interesting but we're doing other stuff so it's not yeah. like we aren't yeah. gonna and it's not easy just to go from like a big topic like Syria or Russia or Ukraine and just switch to something completely different because yeah. it's such a massive topic. Um, sure. And it, you, it takes a while to kind of like, you know, cycle up to actually get to the point of doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we wouldn't really do stuff we're told to do because the whole point of doing cap <laughs> for me is doing what I want to do, not what someone else wants me to do. Yeah. How about, how about the, uh, the killing of ideas? So, you know, I'm going to quote something from your book here. Um, so Sergei Lavrov, uh, who is the Russian foreign minister, uh, stated uh, at one point, quote, Bellingcat is closely connected with the intelligence services, which use it to channel information intended to influence public opinion. So while, so actually, let me just raise that issue and let you go in the direction you wish. The, the accusation that Bellingcat um, has ties to the intelligence agencies or is um, given an agenda, maybe a, a one that you find interesting agenda that you pursue, or even, and there's three or four questions that have come in here, uh, that maybe you're funded in some way by intelligence services. So let me let you comment on that however you wish. Right? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, we're not funded by intelligence services. We don't work with them. I know some, some people, especially kind of Russian diplomats and you know, government figures like to tell people that. I mean, they started off just saying I should be ignored because I'm just some amateur. And now they're saying I'm 
you know, the head of the CIA or whatever it is this week. I mean, literally yesterday, two you know, high-tier Russian diplomats were saying that Bellingcat is working for the CIA and paid by the CIA. But I, there was um, after we did the whole Scriffle story in 2018, mm -hmm. um, the Russian ambassador to the UK gave a really long press conference, and he repeatedly said that Bellingcat was working with the intelligence services and funded by the intelligence services, and we were part of what he called the British Deep Establishment. I feel like he was wanted to say deep state, but someone yep. said that probably will come across as crazy. And then at the end, the journalist asked question, and the very first question was like, you've accused the UK government of not presenting evidence over the scribble poisoning, but what's your evidence that Banning Cat is working for the intelligence services? And he said, oh, I can't show you the evidence, we just have a feeling. And yep. he kind of went on this waffly answer about how they didn't have any evidence, but it's, it's just, they just throw the accusations out. Yep. And if, you know, someone wants to say we've received money from the intelligence services, that we've worked with the intelligence services, you know, show the proof of it. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it doesn't it. exist. So I don't, oh. And also I would say as well, because we're now a registered charity in the Netherlands, this one of the parts of that was because it requires us to have a yearly audit and be really transparent about our finances. Yep. So part of the reason we became a charity was because we were like, we had to have that transparency to keep our charity status. Yep. Um, I mean, it's like now we're going for our second audit um, which is always a lot of fun. Yep, uh, sure. It's always the one receipt you've forgotten to keep that they want to see. You know, so Elliot, you raised something that's very interesting. This sort of, and, I, and in the book, you call it the counterfactual community, hmm. uh, sort of the, the sort of the Russian disinformation par excellence spreads widely online to just throw lots of things that have no basis. And if you, you know, I think they're, the, the logic might be if you say it often enough, frequently enough, some people may believe it, right, um, et cetera. So tell me how you cut through that noise or do you just ignore it? And what do you, what do you tell people like us who are information consumers about digesting information? It's tricky because the internet is very good at creating these kind of online communities who are effectively radicalized around certain topics, especially if they have a, a distrust in authority. And that can actually be kind of a whole range of subjects. I mean, obviously, we've been targeted by kind of Russia and, you know, people are kind of pro-Assad and those kind of communities. But really, it's about people who they feel let down by some form of authority. It might be that, you know, the build up to the invasion of Iraq, where there was a lot of false information shared by government that kind of destroyed their faith in governments and you know their respect for that authority or it could be they had a bad experience with a doctor and now they have a lack of trust in medical authority or it could be they think the earth is flat because they think all scientists are liar liars so mm -hmm. um they but the kind of mechanism behind why they start thinking like this is often the sign they have this kind of conspiratorial doubting, doubting mindset and the internet is brilliant at making you find stuff that reinforces your current beliefs because the you know the social media companies the uh, big tech companies they want you to stay on their platforms Google yep. wants you to use Google to do stuff. And the way they do that is finding stuff that they think you want to look like, uh, look at. And yep. then they build a profile of you and flog that to advertisers. Yep. But on the other hand, that starts, you know, you go to YouTube, click on a video that says the earth is flat and you think, ha ha, that's funny. Click on it. Maybe one in a thousand video people then clicks on the next video that's recommended about the earth being flat. And then maybe one in a thousand of those people clicks on the next video. But by that point, that number is going to get, you know, bigger and bigger. Maybe then it's a hundred in a thousand, 500 in a thousand. Yep. And you actually start becoming a part of a community. You start entering this kind of alternative media ecosystem, this counterfactual community 
that is serving you the stuff you want to hear. And they don't think of themselves as lying to you. They think they're the heroic truth seekers fighting against the you know, evil other side, be it on the use of chemical weapons in Syria, whether or not bleach is a good medicine, coronavirus being a hoax, or you know, the earth being flat. And um, the question is then, how do you address these communities? I, I do a lot of work with people looking into disinformation. And so often it's seen as an external force acting on a community, like Russia convincing people that, you know, they you know, didn't poison Navalny, that kind of stuff. But really it's about these pre-existing online communities that are producing a lot of this information. And what I found really fascinating in my work over the years is how um, Russia in particular actually uses the kind of stories and ideas coming from those communities in their own disinformation. And then yep. those communities kind of feed off that and grow and they take certain individuals and they'll, they'll go on Russia today or get taken to the UN to give a statement about how, you know, the white helmets or, you know, Al Qaeda or, you know, all chemical weapon attacks are fake. Um, but it's not because it's an external force acting on those communities. It's those communities being used by those external actors. How do we as consumers or interacting with social media immunize ourselves from some of these dynamics? Is it, is it really about individuals thinking for themselves and sort of having that media literacy? The, you know, I suggest you triangulate, never trust any source. Every source is incomplete and biased. So therefore, you know, form your own opinion, put your own mosaic together. Uh, or is there another way? Is this something that needs to be regulated? I mean, it's easy to say, well, as an individual, you need to kind of read as much as you can, but most people just click on YouTube links or Twitter article, they don't bother reading before they retweet it. And, you know, you've seen an article about something on Twitter and it's just has, it has the headline and you don't bother reading the article, you retweet it. And then before you know it, 2000 people have retweeted that article. It can be completely false, but it's entered the kind of media kind of information ecosystem. Um, also the way you're being recommended stuff as well. I think it, there does need to be some form of, you know, agreement regulation, something between um, the social media companies, the big tech platforms about how we're being, you know, basically how we're selling our digital souls for them. So we get good yeah. Netflix recommendations. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, some people might want to do that. I would really like to be, you know, if I click on Netflix, I would like to watch stuff I actually want to really get into. You know, that yeah. kind of real yeah, locks yeah. in. So that's a good thing. <laughs> I don't want to be looking at random videos. Um, yeah. But at the same time, the way in which they use that kind of information, I think does need to be regulated a lot more strictly and it needs to be better understood. And I think we, it, it's difficult because it becomes a free speech issue. I think people should be able to put videos online saying that the earth is flat. That's okay. But I don't think the social media companies, the tech platforms should be recommending that to people. Sure. Because, sure. And they are platforms. They aren't, you know, they, they aren't a government agency. They, there's no kind of free speech, you know, you know at that kind of level. And yeah. Country and country. But at the same time, where is the line? Where's the line where you say, no, that's not allowed. That's, you know, that's crazy. Because it's easy to say, oh, the earth is definitely not flat. It's easy to say that, you know, yeah. um, you know, the moon isn't made of cheese, whatever. But what happens if people start saying, well, the chemical weapons attacks in Syria are fake. Now, some people, some quite mainstream people, you know, politicians in the UK, for example, some people actually seem to believe some of those stories. Yet, you know, I've worked a lot on these chemical weapons attacks. I really genuinely believe there's a lot of evidence that clearly points these are happening. But like the 2018 Duma chemical attack, there is a lot of debate about, you know, online about, you know, between people saying that didn't happen. And you have now someone from the OPCW who leaked documents that are being used to you know, propagate this story, it didn't happen, or it was faked by the rebels. 
But when you actually understand the evidence, when you go really deep into it, like you know, I have, my colleagues have, and the OPCW has, it's, it's clear what happened. Yeah. But going deep into the evidence is a huge amount of work. And if you're some poor fact checker at a social media company and you've got five seconds to say yes or no, this is allowed, it's difficult. If And then you actually have the fringes of these kind of uh, alternative e- media ecosystems on if issues that start creeping into the mainstream, always giving, being given a valid platform for debate because they're saying I shouldn't be censored because this is actually a real thing that needs debate when really it isn't, but it's just such an amazingly complex issue that mm-hmm. you can't really have a, yeah. a, any ordinary person cannot truly understand it without hours and hours and hours of research. Um, and I think that's what makes it so difficult. But I think, you know, when we have things like QAnon and stuff like that, I think the social media companies reacted far too slowly and that resulted in what happened on January 6th. Um, and yep. QAnon is obviously completely insane, but, you know, would it re- require every time for there to be like, some reaction, a huge potentially, you know, catastrophic event like that? Or can we actually do something before then? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things I think will enter the political agenda here in the United States this year is uh, not to bore you with the technicalities of U.S. law, but Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act really provides this platform protection to some of these companies, and they've they've hidden under it. Um, and I think it's time for that to sort of be updated, modernized, etc. Um, and you know, there's obviously a lot of attention among the political uh, types here in the United States about regulating big tech and where it happens, etc. And there's also this this overarching concern of what you've already highlighted of surveillance capitalism, of monetizing us and our thinking and, and, and effectively robbing individuals of autonomy by creating an information flow that leads them like rats to the cheese, if you will, um, and sort of uh, changes our actions, if you will. So, all right, a couple other quick questions. One, uh, you know, I've been doing this webinar, we've had 20 some odd people on and it's been fabulous. And the feedback always, I love the fact that we get book recommendations or movie recommendations from your guests, Vikram. So do you have a favorite book, Elliot, or one that you'd recommend to us? Um, it is probably really specific, but I've been reading okay. Toxic by uh, Dan Casita, which is about the history of chemical weapon use. Sorry, say uh, it again. Toxic, it's called. Yeah, it's um, it, from someone like me who's really into chemical weapons, it's really interesting. But <laughs> I think it, it is a really good primer, especially around the conflict in Syria, where there has been oh. so much chemical weapon use. Not only of what happened, why it's so important that we actually react when these chemical weapons are used, because they are horrifying. And we've yep. not only seen what's happening in Syria, but now what's happening in Russia with Novichok poisonings, both uh, you know at home and abroad in Russia. Um, yep. As for films, I, I always recommend people watch... Um, uh, behind the uh, be- behind the curve, which is the flat Earth uh, documentary about flat yeah. Earthers, because mm-hmm. you kind of look at that and think, well, you know, flat Earthers are a very specific yeah. kind of person. Yeah. But I, I watched it; and I was very um, impressed by the parallels between the okay. flat Earth community and the kind of other counterfactual communities that you encounter, uh-huh. down yeah. to the levels of kind of why they're part of those communities, how the communities operate, the personalities in those communities. If you start looking at these different kind of counterfactual communities, you do start seeing there's a lot of parallels between them. Um, and also the um, social dilemma as well was also a very oh, yeah. interesting one. Because yeah. funnily enough, I was we're, we're trying to develop an app at Bellingcat for a volunteer section. I, it, half, I was like halfway going, oh, this is appalling. I'll say, oh, that's actually quite a good idea for our volunteer section. I better take a note of that. Um, <laughs> those two documentaries together, I think they actually do a pretty good job of showing you what is the kind of threat we face now with um, social media and kind of basically online radicalization in yep. so many different kind of areas. 
Yep. Okay. So I've got a lot of questions now. Some, some, I don't know what you said, but somehow questions have streamed in everywhere. I'm looking at my email, my texts, everything. Uh, so uh, let me go, we'll go a little quicker. Um, how did, for the MH17, how did a small team of five of you manage to interpret so much information in Russian so quickly? Do you use Google Translate or et cetera? Um, and I know that I think it's, uh, you have some folks on staff that speak Russian, but the use of translation for Arabic or what have you? Yeah. So um, with MH17, in a way, you had this kind of organic search engine made up of real people finding a lot of really interesting material very early on. And they were kind of like hooks to get us into other parts of the investigation. And some people who became part of our volunteer team were Russian speakers. So yeah. quite quickly, it was possible to find all this information just because we had people looking for it anyway yep. and then start organizing it and then when we kind of had organized that initial kind of wave of information the videos the photographs the social media posts those then allowed us different avenues to explore different aspects of it yep yep good so i, I figured it was a collaborative joint effort uh another question will the radicalization which is a consequence of online communities and disinformation combined with instant availability of quote everything ultimately be the downfall of civilized societies. Uh, everyone is an independent judge, jury, and executioner these days, as opposed to times past when we simply had to wait for the evening news, which had been curated or had some screening. I think we need to be, as kind of individuals, as kind of communities, you know, as policymakers, as people at tech companies, really proactive about how we address this issue. Because if we don't, and we just say, oh, everything's okay, democracy is fine, we end up with what's happened, you know, a few weeks ago in the Capitol building. Yeah. That is just one of probably what will be a more and more examples of groups that have been radicalized online, you know, participating in violence. I mean, we saw on Christmas Day, there was a um, suicide bombing in America against, I think it was AT&T, and they believe that's related to 5G conspiracy theories. We've had yeah. people trying to shoot up pizza parlors because of what they've read about, um, you know, the Pizzagate and stuff like that. This is going to happen more and more if we don't address it. The better social media companies and tech platforms get are pushing us towards content we want to see. It might be good for some of us who want to you know, find a good film on Netflix, but for some people, it's going to push them into more and more radicalized um, subcultures and groups. And I think it is actually really dangerous that if we don't address this issue, then it will just build up and build up over the time. Yeah, it seems that, uh, here's another question. It seems like all of your work has been in and around Russia and Russia's disinformation and nefarious activities. Um, have you thought of looking at, or have you ever looked at things relating to the Chinese ecosystem? Well, China's a bit difficult. We, I think the one big barrier there is just the language barrier. I mean, that big, and also the evolution of um, open source investigation really, I think started with the conflict in Libya. And then it moved to Syria. So there's always kind of a Middle East focused initially, mainly on Libya and Syria, a bit on Yemen. Um, but then with MH17, that kind of drew everyone's attention to Ukraine and Russia. And then it went back to Syria when Russia started bombing that. And because this isn't a massive community, I mean, it's still really, really small. It's probably made up of a few hundred individuals even now who are like really kind of part of the community. It's um, still very, it's still so small that going to a subject as big as China without people without language skills is actually a huge kind of leap. And it's the same with a lot of other countries across the world. I mean, we're doing more work in Latin America now, but still there's kind of less um, kind of researchers there who are doing this kind of work. We've started doing a bit of work in Africa as well, um, but it's a kind of huge, you, you've got to train people, you've got to, you know, 
one thing that has led the growth of open source investigation is kind of the big investigations we've done. And that's often has focused on Russia because they're doing so many big things in the world and they're quite bad things and it has an international context. But when we started working in Africa and Latin America, we've been more focused on supporting the work of local groups so they can work on a subject with our kind of additional open source training and then learn from us and then use those skills in their own networks and then spread it in their own community because Network, um, is really just like one node in a network. I mean, we're yeah. quite a large influential node, but we don't want to be the only node. We don't yeah. want to be a kind of WikiLeaks where you have Assange at the top, WikiLeaks, and then, you know, everyone else below that. It's kind of, we're just one part of a huge network. And that's why we do so much work collaborating with other organizations and spreading how we do these things. It's not just about Bellingcat and Elliot Higgins. It's about the entire kind of open source community. Yeah. So someone sent in a picture, actually. I'm going to put it up here. We put it on a slide. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll share the screen yeah. so you can see it. Uh, quick comment, maybe in the interest of time. Uh, this is a uh, slide that is two pictures yeah. off of Twitter. On the left is a guy in Ukraine or Russia. That airport apparently was destroyed. On the right, it appears to be the same person posing in a similar way during the Capitol storming. Uh, found on Twitter. Something worth looking at? Like, what do we think of something like this? In real time, your expert assessment, if you will. I've seen this image. It is a guy who goes around filming stuff around the world. He's not like a kind of Russian agent trying to you know, okay. ferment revolution in the capital. He's just kind of one. I mean, I've watched but same hours guy. of videos from the capital, and there are plenty of other people who are much more active, Americans who are much more active in geeing up people to attack the building. Okay. One Russian wouldn't have made a difference. All right, fine. So speaking of uh, Russia, Kremlin, et cetera, uh, given the work you've done with the Skripal poisoning, the Ukraine stuff, uh, the foreign minister not being so fond of you, uh, do you worry about your safety? I mean, obviously, I don't think you're taking a vacation to, to Moscow. Um, yeah, I, my <laughs> travel plans to Russia and Syria have obviously been uh, curtailed. But um, yeah, I mean, we do have to be really careful. I mean, there's a kind of cyber security element because we have been attacked, you know, our emails have been kind of attacked and that kind of stuff, um, you know, typical Russian stuff. We've also had, um, you know, quite specific threats against us, physical threats. So yeah. me personally, I have um, the UK counterterrorism police often visiting uh, my house just to check up on me and you know give me advice on my safety and stuff like that our lead researcher on the russian stuff as well christo grozev because he's been unveiling uh you know all these russian assassination programs that's obviously worried his local police as well so he's had plenty of visits so you do have to be kind of quite careful and cautious and i i, I do little things now like um if i go to a hotel when i'm traveling i never eat any food in the hotel that I haven't personally seen myself. And like, if you go, sometimes you go to a fancy hotel and they leave out, you know, a nice little cake or something or some like chockies and they go straight into the bin. I don't touch them. Uh, I'll go to the local supermarket and buy these really sad plastic wrap sandwiches rather than risk any possible exposure to anything. And even just, you just do get a kind of level of paranoia and you just have to kind of, you know, be careful because you look at what happened with Navalny. I mean, they went into hotel room and poisoned his underpants. So, you know, if that can happen, then, you know, people like us you've got to be careful yeah is that predominantly because of the russian dynamics that you're worried about specifically russia i mean you, you obviously mostly russia but you also have because of these counterfactual communities being made up of people who often have um extreme personality traits you don't want to be the person they decide is you know people are saying all the time that i'm working for the cia and this and that yeah. if someone really believes that and they think i need to be kind of taken out what's going to stop them from turning up in an event with a knife or a gun and having a go so we do have to be careful um 
big topic. I realize we probably won't have time to fully address it, but I have to put it on at least to get your quick reaction. I know you touch on it in your book. Uh, a lot of the work you're doing, Elliot, in the open source community is using videos and formulating opinions based on location and connecting the dots between videos. Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and specifically deep fake technology that's going to able that that's presenting the ability to uh, have movies or videos that look authentic, that are in fact very similar, almost indistinguishable to the human eye of a person saying something, doing something, possibly being somewhere. Um, how do you think about that? And how big a threat is that to your effective business model or your, your, your logic, your approach, your framework and your methodology? Well, I don't think we've reached a point yet where it's sophisticated enough to generate a huge amount of, amount of kind of complex video content. So often it's, you know, someone talking to the camera and it's been adjusted. And if it's, you know, a politician saying something to the camera and it's a two minute clip shared on Twitter, any, per like we would go and find the full clip and look for that moment where he was saying that thing. Of course, most people are just going to retweet that. So there is the problem where it, it's great to say, oh, yeah, we'll investigate it and we'll use it as evidence and stuff like that. But if stuff starts getting out there and, it, you know, sometimes it can be lead very quickly to violence, you know, not so much in the West, but in other parts of the world, um, there has been you know, a lot of cases where disinformation spread through close social net networks like WhatsApp have caused violence targeting certain communities. And I think that's where there's kind of more of a risk because within closed social networks, there's a kind of implicit trust with the other people in the network. So if someone shares a video, you aren't gonna even think it could be a deep fake. If it shows something, say, you know, Muslim and Hindu violence in India or somewhere like that, that can lead to problems. And it has led to problems in different parts of the world in the past, you know, Buddhists being targeted in parts of the world and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. It is a risk, but also the way we work at Bellingcat, because we often focus on using this evidence, this kind of material as evidence, we will not just like say, oh, someone's put out a two minute YouTube video or something, it must be real. We'll look to kind of triangulate that content. Yeah. Last question, because I don't think we're going to have time to really get, I mean, I've got 10 more here, Elliot, which is great, because obviously the individuals are engaged and they care about what you're doing and they're very happy you're doing it. Uh, one of the things you talk about, and I'm going to connect it to the book uh, because I do want to make sure we get a chance to endorse it again, <laughs> um, is you talk about your work in Yemen as being the new age of sort of investigative journalism where you're archiving, you're gathering data because you're realizing that actually this might in fact be evidence going forward. You know, the International Criminal Court had their first, uh, in, I guess, indictment or whatever uh, that you'd call it, uh, based on predominantly social media evidence uh, fairly recently. Uh, a lot of the work you did uh, in that world too. So you're turning into a little bit of historian and archivist effectively, right? Contextualizing data, gathering it, putting it, organizing it, and having it available for future investigations. Um, is that a fair characterization? And how do you think about sort of the, the bringing down data because it's got this ephemeral quality to it? Yeah, um, that... I think, especially in the context of conflict, we are moving more towards, um, if there's an incident, we have a systemized process for downloading the videos, investigating them, um, almost like a forensic trail of how we've done that as well. So when we've done our investigations, we've used a very particular process to do the investigations. We're seeking certain things about those investigations. We can package them up, and if it ever comes to the point where, you know, a justice and accountability proceeding, a court or something says, can we look at this evidence, we can present kind of a complete package of um, you know, 
correctly archived material, uh, our investigation process and the final result of that investigation. Because what we learned with MH17 when there started being court cases and people coming to us asking if we could help out is it was nightmarish to recreate what we had done because so much had kind of gone missing, you know, articles had been deleted. Um, we hadn't had any process around downloading videos because we we're just a bunch of people with laptops, not like anyone with a big server we could lo load stuff onto. But we've worked like organizations like um, the Syrian Archive, for example, if you've collected like a million videos on Syria on looking at how we start turning that collection of videos into something that's useful for bigger justice and accountability proceedings by adding metadata to it and then doing those kinds of investigations on it. And I'm, I'm hoping more and more organizations who are working with open source material with a focus on justice, accountability and human rights will start using these kinds of processes. So we're trying to not only develop this process and these kind of methodologies, but also turn them into something that can shared with other people so they can do it themselves. Yeah, no, it's fabulous. Uh, all right, I'm just going to read the last one because the person is asking me to read it. They said, please, before you. <laughs> so uh, will you go in the direction of environmental and climate change compliance monitoring? Is open source have a role there uh, specifically in keeping tabs on things, maybe not war crimes or, or violence per se, but just is a company actually doing what they want to do, et cetera? Um, maybe you can answer that very briefly <laughs> so we can wrap up our time. In the last few months, we've actually started doing some conservation-focused um, investigations. Um, I, I can't go into specifics because they are criminal-level investigation. I don't give anyone clues, right. but um, it is something we're looking into at the moment. I, I'm, we are planning to expand a lot into those kind of areas. Wonderful. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Elliot, thank you for your time. I want to, again... Uh, we Are Bellingcat is uh, Elliot's forthcoming book, comes out in March. It uh, reads like a spy novel. It really is wonderful. I highly recommend it. I finished it uh, early this morning and thought it was uh, worth the time. Um, and Elliot, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work you do. I think the world is better uh, for having people shed light on uh, some of the dark corners of the world, which we wish didn't existed, but having some transparency there is, uh, is helpful for all of us. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 